All right, take a Bible and find Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. As you turn to Luke 17, I'm going to put a verse up on the screen, and I'm going to read it to you. It's Luke 19.10, and it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If you were around Emmanuel in 2015 and 16, I did my best to drum this verse into your brain over and over and over and over and over again. Every week we talked about it on repeat as we went through the Gospel of Luke. If you're going to be here this upcoming Sunday, this is the passage that we're going to be in, Luke 19. It's the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. And the last verse of that passage, Luke 19, 1 to 10, is for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And so we're going to talk about that Sunday. I bring it up tonight to simply make the point that Luke 19.10 is the big idea of the gospel of Luke. And this is something that I think will help us understand the passage that we're going to look at tonight. The gospel of Luke is not, I repeat, not a book that tells you what you need to do in order for Jesus to love you. The Gospel of Luke is a book that tells the story of what Jesus came to do for unworthy sinners, for people who don't love him, for people who have sinned against him. And it's really important that we've got that nailed down tonight. One word about the immediate context as we're looking at Luke chapter 17. The immediate context of Luke 17 focuses on discipleship, and it addresses issues like temptations, forgiveness, and faith. You should fight temptation. You should resist temptation. You should be eager to forgive other people. You should have faith that God will keep his word. Luke 17, 7 to 10. Short passage. Here's the big idea. There is nothing that we can do that will ever put God in our debt. This is the advanced class tonight, no screens. If I skip something or I leave it off, do my best not to do that. There is nothing that we can do that will ever put God in our debt. All right, take your Bible. Luke 17, verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come home from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also... You, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's the word of God. Let's start off talking about servants and slaves. Servants and slaves. In verse 7, I'm reading out of the ESV Uh, It says, will any one of you who has a servant? And the ESV has a footnote down to the bottom, and it says the actual word here is slave. So if my checking is correct, the ESV, the NIV, the NLT, and the King James use the word servant, and the New American Standard and the Christian Standard Bible use the word slave. 
The Greek word is doulos. In English letters, it would be D-O-U-L-O-S, doulos. And literally, it does mean slave. And many English translations opt for the word servant because Americans get uneasy when you use the word slave. And you understand why Americans get uneasy when you use the word slave. It's because that's part of our history. That's sort of built into who we are as a people. And so they throw that word in there and they say, well, that's what the word means. But that word carries a lot of baggage for people in our culture, one way or the other, and so many translations end up using the word servant. So one of the things we need to be clear about is that when Jesus is telling this parable, and he's talking about servants or slaves, whichever word you want to go with, he's talking thousands of years before any slaves were brought to the United States of America. And so whatever cultural baggage we have in the back of our mind when it comes to the issue of slavery in this country may or may not help us understand what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about slavery. You can't take things that have happened after the Bible was written and always use those to understand what the Bible is saying. You have to go back into the context, back into the historical setting of what was being talked about and what was written to understand what Jesus is trying to say. So I just want to say a couple of things briefly, make a couple of points about servants, slaves, and how we try to think through this as people who live in this country with our experience of slavery. Here's the first thing. The economy of the ancient world is very, very different, categorically different than the modern, industrialized information economy that we live in today. And when you talk about the issue of slavery today, in our founding as a nation, or back in the first century, you're dealing with an issue of economics. And the economics are so different, the systems are so different, the way that people live, the way that they make money, the way that they earn a living, the way that they own property, all of those things are so different from first century Rome to the United States of America in the 21st century or in the 18th century. It's very hard at times to compare those things like apples and apples. Here's the second thing. In the biblical mindset, the Old Testament envisions a scenario. It's hard for us to envision this, but the Old Testament envisions a scenario where a slave would come to the end of his or her term of service, servitude, and would actually say, I love my master and I want to stay with my master. We don't really have a category for that today. We think that's crazy. I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense. This must be a backward book. That's chronological snobbery to assume that we've got everything figured out, and back then those people were just plain dumb. The idea, as it's talked about in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, is that slavery was part of ancient Israel. There were restrictions to it. It wasn't a free-for-all. You couldn't do whatever you wanted to do. There were restrictions, and there were instances talked about in the law where a slave would come to the end of their time and say, you know what, I've got it pretty good here. My master's good to me. I think I'm just going to stay right where I'm at. So you just got to have that in your brain. Let's talk about the New Testament. In the New Testament, you can look at a place like Matthew 18, 
the New Testament recognizes something that was very common in first century Rome, and that's that a person might amass a debt that they could not pay, and because they had that kind of debt, they would therefore enter some sort of servitude or slavery. So you understand, ancient Rome, ancient cultures, they did not have chapter 8, 7, 9, whatever sort of bankruptcy code we might rely on today. They didn't have that sort of stuff. They had a system where they said, you have a debt, you can't pay it, go work it off. You now work for the person that you owe the debt to. Now, it's not the only way that people entered slavery. I'm not trying to suggest that, but I'm telling you it's a common way for people to enter uh, into servitude or slavery. One more thought. This is just a historical, do with this what you want, but I think it's, I think it's on, on track. In ancient Rome, many slaves, not all, I'm not even saying most, many slaves were better off than freedmen. And the advantage that many slaves had over freedmen is that they had security. It's not like you could just go down to McDonald's and get a job flipping burgers. So many, many freedmen lived day-to-day, hand-to-mouth, one job to the other, and there was no guarantee that you would have any income tomorrow or the next day or the day after. And many people found themselves in a situation where at least as a slave, you had three square meals a day, you had a place to be, you had people to be with, there was safety, and there was some measure of security. So here's why I bring all of this up. What you cannot do when we read this short little paragraph about slaves, you cannot take your American understanding of shadow slavery and dump it back on this passage. You've got to hear Jesus for what he's saying, the time he said it, the culture that he said it in. And the story really is very simple. I mean, you can look at the text. It's not a long story. Jesus says, imagine that you had a servant. Imagine that you had a slave. They've been plowing. They've been keeping the sheep. And they come in after a hard day's work. He says, you are not going to say to that slave, why don't you come sit down at the table? Take your shoes off and kick your feet up. You're going to say to that slave, hey, there's more work to be done. You have more responsibilities. You have more obligations. We think about the the possibility or the probability that a slave enters servitude because of a debt. You understand that the master is saying, hey, you worked really hard today, but the debt's not paid. There's still more to be done. You're still in the hole. I know you worked really hard today. I know you worked really hard this week. You worked really hard this month, but you still have obligations. And so you say to the servant, you say to the slave, fix dinner. Let's have dinner, clean it up, and when everyone's done, then you, you can eat. There's this part in here about do you thank the servant, verse 9, do you thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Again, there's some cultural things at play here. We read that and we say, well, that sounds like bad manners to me. Like, okay, maybe you tell him to come in and fix the dinner and all the rest, but you can't even say thank you. You can't just have good manners to say thank you to the slave. But listen, if you go back and you understand the dynamics at work in first century Rome with masters and slaves, you understand that saying thank you in this context is not just a matter of politeness or manners. It's actually acknowledging that now you owe the slave something. 
It's saying to the slave, hey, I think the scales have tipped here and now you're one up on me and I'm in your debt. Jesus says that's not how the relationship works. Now look, that's so foreign for all of us. Let me give you a few examples to help you understand this verse 9 about you don't say thank you just because they do what was commanded. I want you to think about the last time you went out to eat at a restaurant and you had a really good service. That may mean you're thinking about a restaurant outside of Odessa. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. You go out to eat. You have really good service. Okay? Like the waitress, the waiter, they are on it. Your tea doesn't get below three quarters. The chips never get down to the crumbs. You're not scraping for salsa. Like they're just on point. You have probably had the experience where you come to the end of a meal and you say, they, they earned a big tip. They earned a really good tip. I bet you have never finished a meal or got halfway through a meal and said to your server, you're doing such a good job, we want you to sit down here and eat dinner with us. I bet you never said that. Not a single time. Some of you will probably raise your hand and you'll say, well, my daughter was a waitress one time. Okay, silly stuff aside. We don't do that. You might give them a tip, but you don't say sit down and have a meal with me. Think about buying a house, okay? Maybe you buy a house, sell a house by owner, but most people use a realtor. So let's say you have a great realtor. They show you tons of houses, and you're picky, and they go over and above, and they do all of this stuff, and they make it seamless, and you can't get approved for a loan, but they know a guy, and they work it out, and this realtor is just top notch and you come to closing day and you sign all 8,000 papers that you have to sign and you give all your money away and you say to the realtor you did a great job thank you so much we couldn't have done it without you but not one of you expects the realtor to move into the third bedroom that's your house it's not their house you wouldn't come to the end of that and have that expectation imagine you had a leaky pipe and you called the plumber. And the plumber came out and fixed the leaky pipe. You do not expect the plumber to freshen up in your shower after he fixes your pipes. Is that bad manners? Are you that possessive of your shower that you wouldn't let somebody freshen up? What's the matter with you? You say, no, that's just how we do it. Well, this is how they did it. You don't say thank you because they're just doing their job. You say, well, it sounds like bad manners. Well, it sounds like you have bad manners. You wouldn't let somebody take a shower. Who needed a shower? Let's say you took your car to Alan Ruley, the best tech at Sewell Ford. It's making a rattle. It's got a hum. Something's not right. You take it into Alan. He looks at it. He says, I got it figured out, diagnosed, fixed, easy, no problem. You're good to go. You do not expect Alan to then get in your car and take a road trip to Florida. You say, well, no, 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 that's my car. You take your car. That's my car. Your job is to fix my car. Your job is not to then get in my car and go cross country. So what Jesus is saying is, look, these servants have a job. These slaves have a job. When they do their job, great, they've done their job. But you then, as the master, don't owe the servant anything because they've simply done what was their duty, what was their responsibility. Verse 10, what do the servants say? We are unworthy servants, and we have only done what was our duty. 
We're not entitled to take your car on a road trip. I'm not entitled to get in your shower. I'm not going to sit down at your table and eat dinner. That's not how it works. And this isn't how this worked. Now, let's just back out from that and think about all these issues at play. Son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus gets to define discipleship, and discipleship is not optional. And now he's talking about servants and debts and who's worthy and who's not worthy and who owes who and what are we supposed to do with all of this. So let's just back it out a little bit and just think biblically about a couple of ideas. How should Christians think about and apply the parable of the unworthy servants? Number one, we all have a sin debt with God that we cannot pay. All of us. We all have this debt. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages. Wages are what you earn. Wages are what you have coming to you as your due for the work that you have put in. The work that you have put in is sin. And your due, what you have coming to you, is death. Paul talks about it in Colossians 2, as we have a record of debt between us and God. There is nothing we can do to put God in our debt, but you've got to understand that as sinful people, we very much are in His debt. And you have to understand as people who live in the year 2022, that you live in a society that almost has completely lost that idea. What I just said, this is what I said, we all have a sin debt with God that we cannot, cannot pay. If you said that to people in this country 50 years ago, 100 years ago, most people had some idea of what you were communicating. If you say that to people today, you're going to get a blank stare. That's because we live in a therapeutic culture that has moved sin into the categories of disadvantages and disorders. And you live in a time and a place where people have justified and rationalized all sorts of insane behavior. And you live in a culture where certain sins are celebrated and society is beginning to have the expectation that all of us will celebrate certain sins. Here's the warning of Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to the people, to the church, to the pastor, to the parent, to the person, the man, the woman, the boy, the girl, who says that's an evil thing and I call it good, or this is a good thing and I call it an evil thing. Woe to that person. Look, societally, we can keep burying our head in the sand and we can pretend like we don't have a sin problem. But as soon as you pull your head out of the sand, the fact remains, we all have a sin debt with God and it's a debt that we can not, talking about ability, can not pay. Secondly, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. A ransom. 
Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It's the big idea of Luke. It's a parallel verse with Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Mark 10.45 is the big idea of Mark. Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom implies a payment. You see the connection here? You have a debt, and Jesus came to make a payment. You have a debt that you can't pay, and Jesus came to pay a debt that he didn't owe. Philippians 2 describes it. I'm going to let you look at Philippians 2 on your own. I just want to note that Philippians 2, most Bible scholars think, is a hymn. It's a very early Christian hymn talking about Jesus coming to earth to die on a cross for sinners to make this ransom payment. Christians were singing about that very, very, very early in church history. And 2,000 years later, Christians are still singing about it. That's the heart of what we sing about as Christian people is that we had a sin debt that we couldn't pay, and Jesus came to pay our debt. I've been thinking all week about a song from the 70s written by a guy named Ellis Crumb. He paid a debt he did not owe. I had a debt that I couldn't pay. I needed someone to wash my sin away. You probably sang that, probably in this room at some point in time. That's what we're saying in these first two points. We have a debt that we can't pay. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for our sin debt. Number three, the Christian is doubly owned, first by creation and second by redemption. The Christian is doubly owned. Look, when we talk about slaves, servants, we're talking about ownership. So we're backing this out, and we're thinking about that concept, and we're saying, okay, the Christian is doubly owned. First, because Genesis 1-1 is true. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything. God created everything. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you're part of everything. God's your creator. Psalm says he knit us together in our mother's womb. He made you. You belong to him because he made you. He's the creator. And if you're a believer, you belong to him because he redeemed you. He came to make a ransom payment, to make a payment for your debt that you couldn't pay. He bought you. He made you and he bought you. 1 Corinthians 6 You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You don't own yourself if you're a Christian. God owns you. Owns you first because he made you. Owns you secondly because he bought you. Something similar in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15. Talks about not living for ourselves. Jesus died for us. So that we would not live for ourselves, we would live for him who bought us. We live for him because we belong to him. He made us and he bought us. So I read this idea, these verses this week, and I thought about Legos. I have two kids in my house that love Legos. And I had wonderful pictures of Legos to show you. 
I was going to show you the last two Lego sets that were built in my house. One is a tree house. I think it's the biggest Lego set that's ever been built in my house. Really, really cool tree house. And the other one is a truck and a horse trailer. You can imagine who in my house wanted to build a truck and a horse trailer. So I got two kids. They love Legos. If you have kids or grandkids that love Legos, you understand that if they take their money, and both of my kids did this this last week, they took their money, birthday money, Christmas money, chore money, whatever, and they bought a Lego set. They bought it. And then they took it home and they worked on it and they put it together and they went through and they made a mistake and they had to go back and then they they get through the whole process and they put it together. They bought it and they built it. They become really possessive of it. Don't touch my tree house. That is not your horse trailer. Get your grubby little fingers off of it. And you watch that and there's part of you that says, well, you're a selfish little brat. Would you knock it off and let your siblings... Play with it. There's another part of you that says, you know, it's kind of biblical. They bought it. They built it. God made you. And he paid for you. He's possessive over his people. He's jealous for his people. And he has every right to be. When Jesus says... The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. And then he turns around and says, this is what discipleship looks like. He gets to say that. You know why? Because he made you and he bought you. You're doubly owned. Number four, followers of Jesus willingly identify as slaves of Jesus. Willingly identify as slaves. We're not going to look these up. We're going to just walk through these. Acts 4, it's the very first prayer meeting recorded in church history, Acts 4. And right in the middle of their prayer, the church says, we are your servants. Same word, we are your slaves. It is baked into their understanding of who they are. Romans 1, I just gave you one of Paul's letters. Paul, as he introduces himself in his letters, he says, hey, my name's Paul. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. He owns me. I'm his. I'm his slave. James and Jude, the half-brothers of Jesus, both wrote books, letters in the New Testament. They both introduced themselves. Neither of them said, hey, I'm James. You may have heard of me. Jesus' half-brother. I'm Jude, Jesus' favorite brother. They both say, hey, I'm James, I'm Jude, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. You know how crazy that is for a brother to say that about a brother? Regular brothers don't say that about each other. Jesus is not a regular brother. He made you and he bought you. And so those guys say, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. First Peter, Peter says the craziest thing. In uh, 1 Peter 2.16, Peter says, because Jesus has died for you, you're free people. So live like a slave of Jesus. Wait a minute. I think you're confused. No, you're free. He set you free from sin and death. So now you live like his slave. 
2 Peter 1.1, Peter says he's a slave of Jesus. Revelation 1.1, Jesus' best friend on the earth, the apostle John, opens the book of Revelation and says, I'm a servant of God in Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, it's all through the New Testament. Christian people willingly, nobody's making them do it, they are willingly self-identifying as slaves of Jesus. Everything within us, naturally, left to our flesh. And everything in the world pushes back against that. In fact, the world wants you to believe one of two or both lies. The first lie that the world would like you to believe is, you don't have to serve anyone. You can be your own captain. You can be the master of your own fate. You can do whatever you... You you can run your life. You can decide who you want to be. You don't have to serve anyone. The great prophet Johnny Cash summarized biblical theology well when he sang, you're going to serve somebody. Maybe the devil, maybe the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. Ancient Israelites, you're going to serve somebody. Maybe the gods of Egypt, maybe the gods of Canaan, maybe the Lord, but it's not going to be yourselves. You're going to serve somebody. You were made to serve someone, and you will serve someone. person living in Odessa, Texas, thousands of years later, you're going to serve somebody. It might be a little g-god, money, Fame, power, job, career, hobby, leisure, children, parents, family, church. Or it might be the big G God, but you are going to serve somebody. Don't fall for that lie that you don't have to serve someone. We all serve someone or something. So that's the first lie. Here's the second lie. If the world doesn't get you on that one, here's the second one the world comes at you with. Serving Jesus is going to be a miserable thing. Absolutely miserable. You're going to ruin your life. It's going to make you miserable. Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 28, says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Serving Jesus won't make you a miserable person. Serving Jesus will give you peace in your soul. Everywhere you look in the world today, you see people who are looking for peace in their soul. And I know that you watch the news and you see things and there's a lot of things that make you outraged and there's a lot of things that gross you out. I get that. But you ought to look at those people and your heart ought to break. People are looking for peace. And they can't find it. They're not going to find it where they're looking. 
It's so counterintuitive. It's in the last place they would think to look. You become a slave to Jesus. You take his yoke on yourself. And then you find peace and rest. Number five, I think we're on five. No Christian can boast about his or her service to God. No servant gets to boast. In this parable, when all the work is done and all the questions are asked, Jesus says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I think Paul makes a very similar point in Ephesians 2. If you have your Bible, you can just flip over there quickly. Ephesians 2, verse 8, he says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If our salvation really is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, what are you going to boast about? Paul tells the Corinthians. I don't even get to boast about preaching the gospel. You put me on this pedestal because I travel all over the world and I tell all these people about it. He said, I don't even get to boast about that. Slaves of Jesus don't get to boast. There's nothing to boast about. You're saved by His grace, through faith, not by your works, so that no one can boast. I worked in the nursery for 20 years. I came to every Wednesday night church and I didn't even leave when the lights went off. So that no one can boast. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He paid all of it. So I I owe him all of it. I don't have anything to boast about. He made me. He bought me. I'm a slave. There's nothing to boast about. Even the good works that we do. Maybe I get to boast for my good works that I was created for. No, God prepared those beforehand for you. He gets credit for those too. You don't get any credit. No credit. Not in the beginning, not in the middle, not in the end. Nothing to boast about. All that you can do is come to the end and say, do you know what? I'm an unworthy servant and I've only done what was my duty. Number six, this is the best part. Faithful servants will be rewarded when the master comes. This is just grace on grace. That's all I can say. It's grace on top of grace. It's God pouring grace into your life, being gracious to you, and then in the end, when Christ comes back and all things are made new, guess what you get as a follower of Jesus, a slave of Jesus? You get more grace. So, look, the emphasis in this parable is the servant comes to the end and the servant says, I'm an unworthy servant. I have only done 
what I was supposed to do. I've only done my duty. What I'm saying to you here is that this isn't the only place where Jesus tells a parable and he describes his followers as servants. There's actual, actually, if you flip back to the left, a parable in Luke 12. It's called the parable, uh, the heading here is you must be ready. It's a parable about a master coming home from a wedding feast. And in verse 36, Jesus says, you need to be like men who are waiting for their master to come home. You need to be ready. You need to be watching. You need to be waiting. And look what he says in verse 37. He says, blessed are those servants. And I'm reading in the ESV, and there's a footnote there, and you go down, and it says bond servants. It's the same word. Best are the, uh, blessed are the servants, the slaves, whom the master finds awake when he comes Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. And that kind of sounds backwards when you've just read in Luke 17. Because in Luke 17, there's a long day's work and then the master comes home and the slaves come in. He says, hey, go fix some dinner and you got more work to do. That's part of the picture. It's part of what Jesus is trying to teach us about being a slave or a servant. That you're going to come to the end of it and all you're going to be able to say, you're not going to be able to boast. All you're going to be able to say is, I'm an unworthy servant, I just did my due. Should you hear, well done, good and faithful servant, you're just going to step back and say, I'm an unworthy servant. And I've only done what was my obligation, what was my duty. And then... The most remarkable thing happens. There's an added piece of information here to this idea of servants. And it's that the Lord Jesus Christ, the master who's coming back for his people, the one who came not to be served but to serve. He did not come that we would serve him. He came to serve us. That's grace. In the end, he has more grace in store. And the master, this is where you have to really read carefully and you have to pay attention to the pronouns here. The master will say to them, come, recline at the table. He, the master, will come and serve them, the servants. That's God's grace poured out on grace. That's you coming to the end, the real end, and having nothing to boast about. I'm an unworthy servant. I ended up here because he, he came to seek and save what was lost. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the only reason I'm here is that Jesus served me. And then you're going to get there, and Jesus is going to be who he is. He's not going to change. He's gentle and he's humble and he's lowly in heart and his yoke is easy and his burden is light and he's going to say, I'm glad you're here. Sit down and I'll serve you. That's God's grace piled on top of his grace. Let's pray together.